Welcome to the Ivy Academy Presents Leadership in Practice, where we discuss critical issues in business, unpack new research, and talk to industry leaders about the latest trends. The Ivy Academy and Ivy Business School are located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and Chinungta nations. This land continues to be home to diverse indigenous peoples, whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society. What makes a good leader? The concept of leadership is often hard to define, and our expectations of leaders, especially in the workplace, are constantly evolving. If you're a leader at any level, you've likely felt pressure to achieve the perfect mix of interpersonal skills, self-awareness, accountability, and inclusion, as well as delivering results for your organization. How do you, as a leader, thrive in that environment? In this episode of Leadership in Practice, we're joined by Hayden Woodley, Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at Ivy Business School. We explore the idea of agentic and communal leadership styles and examine how successful leaders find a balance in their own approach between driving for results and encouraging a healthy culture within their teams. This episode is hosted by Brian Benjamin, Executive Director of the Ivy Academy. Uh, now more than ever, organizations need good leadership uh, to help guide employees and deliver the results that organizations are going after. Uh, but equally, more now than ever, employees are also demanding a new approach and mindset from their leaders. So, so Hayden, question for you is, how do you define what is good leadership? Yeah, I think it's a great question that people constantly try to struggle with understanding. And one of the arguments I would always kind of make about this and some of the things is we think because something becomes salient now, it hasn't been an ongoing issue. But I think that, you know, good leadership has kind of stands the test of time. So the aspects of, you know, what we're looking for in leader and what leads to success are important to understand and at their foundation. And historically, we look at things and, and people might talk about leadership as a certain way. But I find that it's really about, you know, the stories of Christopher Columbus or these pioneers. But that doesn't necessarily mean good leadership. Sometimes we see now people we refer to as leaders don't really care about the people who are following them. And leadership, by definition, requires followership. So holding yourself accountable and not just saying, yeah, whoever follows me follows me and I don't care. Really, now you're seeing people drawing attention to the fact that, whoa, whoa, whoa maybe we've misrepresented what leadership is kind of through our language and through our culture to un and to miss the fact that really leadership is more about who do we have following us? How are we responsible for them? How do we bring them forward and keep them safe and help them succeed? And that's really what leadership is about and what people are looking for from their leaders. Um, but we've kind of historically almost idealized leaders who have this kind of confidence and, you know, and seem like they tell people what to do and they know where to go. But sometimes they, it's because they're blazing their own path and they don't really care who goes down that path. And we never really draw attention to how many people do that and then end up making a path that nobody wants to follow. Ironically, in the events of this year, uh, Elon Musk hitting the Guinness Book of Records for the largest loss of amounts of money, whatever it was, like $200 billion, uh, is an example of he's a great pioneer and I respect him for that. Uh, the challenge is if 
you listen to more about his employees and followers and how he treats individuals within his organization, um, there seems to be murmurs. I don't know. I'm not an expert on, on what's going on in his in, in workplace, but uh, does he have the leadership qualities required to have followers and take care of people? So um, it really is about it's his way or the highway, which isn't really the foundation of, of good leadership. So I want to pick up on that because, you know, a great example and I think an individual that uh, clearly has made a lot of uh, news, um, you know, especially over the last year or so. And you hit on something that's really interesting, which is what you deliver and what you achieve and sort of how you go about doing that, um, including the people that you work with and how you treat them. Can you tell us, you know, in your perspective, you know, some of the traits of a good leader, recognizing there's no one perfect sort of formula, but what are some of the traits that we should be looking for in a good leader? I'm hesitant to say what traits might be good or not in a good leader, because I find it's very contextual. Um, I use sports analogies a lot, where you see a coach when they recognize a player is really frustrated and they don't meet them with that frustrated energy, they calm them down, help them understand the moment and then get them to settle down and be prepared to re-engage with the team. Whereas in other moments where the energy of the team might be low and the coach has higher expectations, they'll introduce emotions in that moment and add frustration and passion and aggression to kind of fire up their employee, their, their, their athletes so, or in an organization, their employees to get them motivated and using emotions to manage those situations. I think in general, emotions are really important because we're all humans. So as a skill, I can see emotional intelligence is really important. But as a leadership style, a style is just a collection of behaviors that a leader um, does. And so you could be an empowering leader and still use emotions. You could be a transformational leader. You could be, um, you know, what's some of the servant leadership style, uh, transactional leaders, all these different types of styles. And there's many, many styles out there. And I think what we're going to learn going forward is there's val uh, validity to each of these different styles. But I'm not here to tell you which one you have to use because I think it's important how you create them. What's interesting is leadership styles tend to be considered a, a soft leadership skill. And interestingly, and I found this fascinating when I learned this, is a meta-analysis done on training. When you look at hard skills, which are things like, okay, how do I use this computer software? How do I use this platform? Whatever these tools are, those I thought would be easier for people to learn because it's like there's one way to do it. Whereas soft skills, which is you know, emotional intelligence, how you lead, how you go about managing your work environment, things like that, those skills I thought would be much more difficult because they're more ambiguous. How do I do this? How do I uh, make this happen or get to that outcome? But research actually suggests that, well, suggests really that meta-analysis showed was that the hard skills are the ones that are difficult to learn. Because there's only one way to do it, whereas you can't then apply it to how you go on about go about doing that and resolving that issue. Whereas the soft skills, you can take the principle of the soft skill and then say, how do I create that and how do I make that happen and what does that mean for me? Which I think is drawing attention to the importance and the psychology of it all, which I find so interesting. So it helps show some validity to why I'm here and around and maybe it'll make my job last a little longer. <laughs> I think there's a long runway here. Uh, and you know, I appreciate your comments around context because we often hear 
especially young aspiring leaders, what's the path I should take or, or how do I learn how to be a great leader? And, and certainly there are lessons, but there's also great to hear many different paths uh, that can get people to, to outcomes. Um, something that we've talked about before in previous conversations um, is uh, sort of that notion of communal versus agentic traits and, and maybe I shouldn't even say versus, right? There's sort of this, this harmony between, between the two of them. Uh, but I'd love you to, to share with our audience a little bit more about what we mean and what you mean when you say communal and agentic traits. Uh, agentic and communal is something, an area of interest in a colleague and I in the Department of Psychology have been working on a project on what do people envision as their like ideal leader and their ideal follower. And there's an activity I like to do with my students, and I've done it with undergraduates and even all the way to executive MBAs. And I get the same reaction, which I find very, very intriguing. Often before the class, I have them write a scenario down of their their experience with a leader, like a moment where they experienced really good leadership and really poor leadership and really good followership and really poor followership. And then in class, before we even touch on those, I have a discussion with them about, let's just do a word cloud. Let's, you know, enter anonymously traits that you think of a good leader, bad leader, things of that sort. And what you find is that they, they come up with a lot of these agentic traits. And agentic traits are tend to be in our society referred to as masculine traits, being confident, being intelligent, right? um, being courageous, being brave, driven, these kind of I'm a person acting on my environment. So I have agency or control over acting on my environment. And you see a lot of these traits pop up when we talk about good leaders. However, when we switch to followers, the language changed to these communal traits where often we hear things like we want them to be supportive, we want them to be helpful. And so these examples of these communal traits of compassion, considerate is what kind of gets associated with followership. I find really interesting and hopefully a good aha moment for my students is I say, here's the word clouds that we've created based on these terms, but let's revisit your stories. And I have them talk about it, but I also pulled out key moments that I've seen in them. And a lot of those stories are flipped, where they talk about a good leader where I went to work and I was having a rough day and my boss recognized that and said, hey, why don't you go home early because it looks like you're having some challenges today. You can't focus. Why don't you take care of yourself and come back tomorrow with some renewed energy? Uh, why don't you, you know, a situation where people are in a set of conflicts, someone is saying, hey, how can I re we can resolve this conflict? I want us to all be able to work together and creating this sense of community, which associated with these communal or, or quote unquote feminine traits in our society. And that's what a lot of the good leadership examples come from. And then when we talked about good followers, interestingly, they bring up a lot of examples of agency or, or mm. masculine traits where they say, you know, I gave someone a task to do and they took it and ran with it. Right. Or that they I had responsibility for that. They, they were brave enough to speak up to support another uh, employee who wasn't getting recognized in the meeting. So this kind of behavior from followers and not saying that one is better than the other. It's just that sometimes our frame of reference and our social norms of what to expect from leaders or from followers gets heavily driven by this understanding uh, and what we expect then from leaders. So as a social, as a society, we say leaders need to have these masculine assertive agentic traits. And but is that really true for leadership? Are we understanding what a leader is at, and knowing that? They need followers. That's a community they're responsible to. So, of course, communal traits are going to be important there. 
And as a follower, we say, well, followers are their own community. And yeah, so communal traits will be important to a certain degree, but we also, they have responsibilities to support the leader and speak up to the leader, and especially in moments where other people might not feel safe speaking up. So that's going to take bravery and confidence and acting on their environment. So there's a level of agency that's required there too. So I would argue that some of the discussions and even when people talk about agency and communion, they talk about traits as like they're against each other as like agentic versus communal traits as you were drawing attention to. But it's really you need agentic and communal traits in a leadership moment. You're responsible for yourself acting on the environment and sometimes you need to use your agentic traits but sometimes you need to use your communal traits and understand you have a community that's following you and you have to support them and give the resources they need and we see this now where meta-analytic research has been showing that empowering leadership accounts for variance in job performance and satisfaction and leader member exchange which is just trust in your leader beyond what transformational leadership does and understanding then more broadly then that there's more to the complexity of being a leader and it doesn't need to be in competition. It can be in addition. Oh, it does. And, and it's so important. You know, we live in a world where you're often it's one or the other. Right. And, and you know, black or white or, or this end or that end of a continuum where it's understanding, you know, sort of both and they both play a role at different times. And I love that exercise you do is, you know, simple yet very powerful to get people sort of thinking about, you know, the traits that they see. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on, which is um, the notion of some of the things we're talking about today are not necessarily new. They might have a heightened spotlight for various reasons. Um, it has sort of the traits of what makes a good leader changed over time? Are they different today than they were 50 or 60 or 100 years ago? I'm not convinced that they have changed. I just think that our ability to analyze and measure them and validate what the behaviors are that are required in a given moment and that, yes, throughout context, the behavior might change to a certain degree as we evolve and, and the environment changes, but the key principles behind what a leader does and their approach to that probably has been pretty consistent over time. And we just haven't done a very good job of recognizing it. So we've been kind of wearing blinders. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is that the world has become more global and business has become more global. And we've been saying that for decades. But only are we really drawing attention to then, well, what similarities and what differences come out of this? One of the discussions right now is, you know, you hear a lot about equity, diversity, and inclusion. When, you, when you're a leader, how you need to be able to do this and make people feel included and that you're going to be working with people from diverse backgrounds and that there's a clear advantage of learning those different and unique perspectives. But the principle of being a leader still stays the same. As a leader, you want to get people to feel included and to feel involved and you want their diverse perspectives. And you don't want to get caught up, though, on these, you know, surface level characteristics of, you know, age, race, your ethnicity, gender, those aren't really the predictors you should be looking for. It's what perspective does that bring to the table, does that person bring to the table because of their unique experiences and perspectives, either from their culture or their upbringing. And the challenge is, even with people trying to apply some of these EDI principles, they're falling behind by then forcing the ideologies on other people and other groups. Um, going back to the agency and communion for a moment, is that there was a paper that just published last year 
which is terrifying that 2022 was last year, but <laughs> it's was looking at uh, agency and communion and how it differed between men and women in Germany and, and men and women in Nigeria. And they found, for example, that Nigerian women were both more agentic and more communal than German women. So some of these patterns, when we think about it being a mass, specifically masculine or specifically feminine traits, uh, may not be right. And as we get more, a broader understanding of cultures and how they influence these traits, we can understand how our conceptions in our society of gender can manifest and influence these. Think sometimes about the story of my mom when she was in law school and she talks about um, she had just had a child and there were some women within the her law program who had, uh, you know, were telling her she was acting almost too feminine. Um, and, and she was like, what does that even mean? Right. And I don't even understand what that, that concept means. And, and she talks about how they would, you know, sometimes there's comments about how, you know, as a, a female lawyer, you should wear a pantsuit. And she's like, no, I'm going to wear a skirt. That's what I want to wear. Um, and you know, she felt, but her upbringing was, she wasn't born in Canada and, and some of the norms that people were trying to push on her were she felt were in conflict with her culture because she's like, it doesn't matter who you are. You wear what you want to wear. Um, and understanding that the gender norms and how they manifest were kind of very different in her upbringing than what were being forced on her by entering kind of the, as she would refer to as the, as the North American or, or Westernized or, um, culture. Um, I, I do think things are changing, but the principles that we know, we're adding to the validity of them the more we broaden our understanding. But the foundational components are staying pretty consistent. And I think really effective leaders are ones who adapt and understand the principles and go, okay, this is a different scenario, but the principles, principles apply. I'm actually going to uh, jump on to a few points you made. One was around um, sort of operating with a bit of blinders. So, so it's interesting. I think there is a bigger spotlight on expectations now. And so while things um, maybe haven't changed as much as some people think, the awareness or at least the, the discussions seem to have picked up. The, the employee, yeah, so those that are in roles where they are being led or, or followers maybe for, for another um, sort of way of framing it, how are the expectations of employees shifting? Do you see changes in the expectations of employees today um, versus maybe even just you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think the, as again, like the context is slightly changing um, as the environment we live in is changing. I would argue that historically things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which was, you know, very important at first and very foundational in psychology, then was kind of pushed away and people were like, oh, we can't validate it. But now more recent research is suggesting, well, maybe there is some truth to it also. So these things move in kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but when you think about it, and the society and the employee was really was about kind of basic needs initially of, you know, do I have a roof over my head? Do I have enough money to feed my family? A lot of short-term goals and opportunities. But I think as a society, as we've advanced and improved in a very positive way, uh, people now have the ability to think more about their life in the long term because we've compiled resources to provide those basic foundations. And, you know, you still get... Uh, which is I find interesting is people care more about money kind of the younger they are, mm -hmm. right? So my undergraduate students are like, oh, it's about how much money I make. But then yeah. my executive MBAs are like, it's not about the money. It's about the experience and my relationship with my leader or my employees or the contribution or the purpose that is being created. So 
you know, you could get those differences just depending on the age group, but you can see the transition that's taking place. And now we have, uh, I don't like saying generation because then we're lumping in all a group of individuals and then making a bit of a stereotype, but sometimes it's just for the ease of, of communication, but we have younger generations who now have more access to resources and are able to now prioritize some of the other aspects of being human as in our basic needs of, of being connected with others and understanding how our impact in, you know, now impacts others and thinking more long-term and understanding sustainability and the aspect of, is this sustainable, right? And, and historically, some people would think about, well, what am I leaving for my children? But now it's, you know, what about my children's children? What world are we creating for them to live and adapt in? And, and where is this world heading? So uh, I think the employee now is those are issues that are more salient to them. And as a leader, that might be different than other generations that you may have interacted with. However, it's the principles still apply there where understanding what your employee needs. I don't lead, you know, person A the same way I lead person B because person A might be very motivated by rewards and what they're getting out of a situation and recognition. And person B might be heavily motivated by what they're contributing and what they do and the purpose in their actions. So as a leader, I need to be able to disentangle those nuances and say, person A needs this from me to stay motivated. They need direction. They need uh, rewards contingent on their behavior where person B needs me to empower them and help them see the purpose in what they do and how it contributes to the organization. So I see more as leadership in the future being about the adaptability to apply the leadership principles to effectively motivate individuals because then I'm respecting their uniqueness, but to see how also make them clear that both of their contributions help achieve some um, greater goal for the organization. So those things that I'm doing are still linked to the desirable shared kind of outcomes. Uh, so thank you for those comments. And it's interesting, you know, sort of how the, the expectations are, are shifting. But in some ways, it's, it's really around um, people having that longer term sort of thinking around what could the possibilities be for me as an employee. So if I am a leader, and, and I've done some work to understand sort of where my strengths are, and where where my shortcomings, what might come more naturally or less naturally, if I recognize that I've got a quote unquote habit that isn't um, necessarily that productive. So if it's a trait that I need to build more of, or if it's a trait I need to, to sort of shift, any tips on, on how I can achieve that? Yeah. And I'll kind of go back a little bit to that agency and communion for a second, because there was something that you'd mentioned earlier about the continuum and then being perceived as opposite ends of a continuum. And you just reminded me of, there's a, like a review paper, um, done in 2021 by Adele and colleagues touching on this and that they're basically two separate axes of so that there's you know the x-axis being agency and communion being a y-axis and understanding how you can kind of then create these four quadrants that people can can act within um, I believe it's called the social evaluation framework but don't quote me on that but it's a very complex mm -hmm. structure but very helpful in sorting information and understanding how we act in our environment and when, here's where I would say I want to touch on and why I'm bringing that up in this moment is tracking agentic traits and communal traits among men and women has uh, in North America, there's a couple reviews on this that have had interesting consequences or findings. Um, one is that men do agentic traits and they're still doing agentic traits, right? This is what they do. Uh, and they're not doing communal traits anymore or less. So one was, I think, in 1997 was one of the reviews of that a longitudinal study. I can't remember when the second one was, but I believe it was approximately 10 years later. And um, they did, did the study again. Same pattern, 
Men are doing agentic traits, no change in the communal traits. In the earlier one, what they found was that women do a lot more communal traits, but they were increasingly doing more agentic traits. One of this to me is a reaction to the environment that they're in, where they're seeing rewards in our, and we sometimes talk about like, oh, this is an, an objective measure of performance. Well, that objective measure might be focused more on, on agentic behaviors. Um, and one thing to make, to touch on a little tangent is, performance is behavior, right? You go witness a performance, it's how they're behaving, whether you enjoyed it or not is the effectiveness. Women are doing more and more uh, agentic traits is what the first review found. And then the second one interestingly found that women were still doing more and more agentic traits, but they're actually starting to pull back and doing fewer communal traits, which tells me that, well, they're responding and reacting to changes in their environment, but the men are still doing the agentic traits and not doing more communal traits. So this is where I find it interesting because people say, well, this is just who you are as a man or as a woman, uh, that these are the behaviors that you're supposed to do. But then why are we seeing change over time? And why are we seeing change in a normative pattern towards the society or the structure of the society of what behaviors are rewarded in the society? Um, so, you know, when research was looking at, when people look at, you know, from various backgrounds, when um, in diff diversity backgrounds, I'd say surface level diversity, when people look at different leaders, they often associate with being a white male. So why aren't people going to do the behaviors if they think they see themselves as being a leader? As an aside, there is a, a meta-analysis in 2014 that looked at leader effectiveness at, between men and women and found that on the surface, you know, men and women are, are equally effective at leading unless you take into consideration who is doing the rating. So men rate themselves as being more effective leaders, whereas women don't to make themselves rate themselves as being less effective than men rate themselves. But if you look at other ratings, which we know are better predictors of actual behavior, so if I want to get to know my personality, it's better to ask the people around me than myself because I'm biased and my cognitive biases will interrupt my understanding of it, that they rate women as being more effective leaders. So I would argue then that women are more effective leaders, but I'm not surprised by understanding that they're doing more agentic and more communal traits, that they're seeing the value in doing both of those to achieve goals, especially in a leadership context. What I see is that when I'm doing self-reflection, understand what biases I might have, what behaviors I might envision a leader should have versus what does my follower need from me, right? So, and take into consideration that both agentic and communal traits are gonna be helpful in a given moment. So I would argue that, you know, when trying to develop your own leadership skills, it's important to self-reflect and try to remove yourself from the biases that you might be shaping you based off of your society that you're in and what people tell you you should or shouldn't do and get a better understanding of what does this situation or context need from me as a leader and how can I apply that? And some things might not come as na uh, um, as natural to you, but our biggest growth comes from stepping outside of our comfort zone. So I think that's great. I think that's exciting. Um, when I teach, I often talk about when I know there's an emotional discussion or a tough topic, uh, I use a stoplight as an analogy, which was not my idea, a colleague shared it with me. But when it's a red light phase, people are very closed off, so emotional and the intensity of the emotion, I'm not concerned about the, what emotion it is, but the emotion is so intense that they can't really process information. But our growth comes from being in that kind of yellow light phase where we're a little bit uncomfortable with the information or the situation or the environment and we have to learn something new and improve something or change or a habit that we might have. So I see that as, you know, 
if you feel like you're in the yellow phase, right? You need to go a little slowly, make sure you're doing things rightly, that's great. Um, green means you're comfortable, um, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It means you're kind of going forward and this has become a habit for you. Um, and so just kind of getting yourself into that little bit of discomfort, but controlled discomfort will be helpful and when developing your own leadership skills. That's terrific. And that, that sort of comment around growth outside of your comfort zone, right? And so I, I think there's a, a, a takeaway there that, that all of us, you know, could, can benefit from. I want to shift sort of the last piece here around, uh, around sort of to organization. Things are changing fast. And so what advice do you have to organizations who are truly looking to build cultures where, you know, strong leadership exists, you know, employees can feel free to share sort of what they expect and, and, and what they demand. Organizations that are on this journey to, to create that, um, what would you say to them? Well, I think one of the things is, as I'm a firm believer in evidence-based decision-making, uh, and evidence-based management has a foundation within my field, and I, I really value it because it's about using the best available information in a given moment to make a decision. And if organizations want to apply that, and what it should lead to, it's like if you go to the doctor, you want them to diagnose what your injuries. What available evidence do you have to to diagnose this and and give me a, a an informed solution or treatment? Um, is organizations need to incorporate that a little bit to understand that leadership doesn't just stop and we're constantly gathering more information and evidence about where it works where it, you know where certain styles might work where it doesn't where it fails how it grows and develops and one thing i think to to give ivy a, a plug if i can um their leader character model is an interesting area of growing research and, and i'm not stating that it's perfect i think there's lots of opportunity for it to grow but it's drawing attention to in my opinion the aspect of these foundational moments of the character and the impact you have and how people judge you and, and character. Um, I think it was oh Alport who said um, personality is your kind of behavior devalued where character is your behavior evaluated. Mm -hmm. So it's in our society of as a leader, like how are you being judged really is what leader character is and my understanding of it. And Within that model, it's got, you know, agentic traits, communal traits, and they're all equally important. Um, and I think that's a situation where it's a newer approach to understanding leadership and organizations are missing out if they're not taking on this new information and learning from it. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing and why I, you know, people sometimes will be like, well, you did psychology. Why are you in a business school? I'm like, well, I did the psychology for the training and expertise because I want to apply it. I want to talk to business leaders. I want to communicate with them and tell them, hey, guess what? I know these cool, this cool evidence and research and it can apply in your organization. So I think what organizations will benefit from is not closing off um, those pathways when they send employees to you know, programs or training initiatives with partner organizations like Ivy, um, but not to close that off, right? To maintain those connections because it's a great source of up-to-date information. Uh, lots of stuff that sometimes, like now, I get a lot of calls and requests to talk about EDI um, or talking about how to lead teams or lead teams in a virtual environment because organizations think that's so different than what it is before. But 
We've been doing research on virtual teams for decades, and the principles now that are applying are not different. The principle is the same. It's just about how you apply it might be a little different. So, so I think that's where organizations need to be open to is not closing off that door. Um, I am regularly quoted for saying that the one best practice is there's no best practice, and that it's important to understand key principles and be able to apply them. And, and that's where I see the future in all of this is leaders and organizations you know you have when things change you change with them it's it's adapt or die in my in my opinion and uh but i think that's a good thing that's an exciting thing and an opportunity yeah so i i like that a lot one one best practice is there's no best practice is that's a theme through our conversation here and you know, we talked about there's no one sort of perfect uh, set of traits that a leader should aspire to uh, or no one formula uh, an organization should follow. Uh, what I did hear, though, is it, it, it's about being aware. It's about continuous investment. And, and it sounds like organizations that are going to excel are the ones that the Shauna Spotlight create these opportunities for their leaders, uh, for their employees, and do it on an ongoing basis because things are changing really, really fast here. Any sort of final comments or, or thoughts? We covered a whole lot of ground, uh, but I want to make sure if there's anything else that you wanted to, to share on the topic, you had a, a platform to do it. I just think it's a, it's a point of understanding of we are living in a world where we can forget sometimes that our environment uh, and patterns that people have practiced decade after decade versus after, you know, hundreds of years back, uh, lead us to where we are now. So we need to understand and reflect on how much of that is actually true or how much was that just like one person years ago said, we should do this. And then it became a pattern of behavior. And now we're kind of reluctant to second guess that. And I think being able to almost question in in an almost scientific way of why do we do this is this helpful? What is it trying to achieve versus just being like, well, it's a habit or we do this and that's what we've always done. Um, Being able to adapt going forward. And I think that's where I see a a big growth is, for example, agentic and communal traits we've thought as a source of categorizing, right? You are of this or identifying this gender of this sex and say, so as a result, you do these behaviors and the other person's supposed to do these behaviors. But is that really the case? And the more I think right now is society is actually questioning that a little bit more and saying, maybe we can all do these traits. And, and I'd be curious to know, you know, uh, what we can and can't do. And as a leader, you can hopefully can see the advantage of why you don't want to get caught under one bucket and that incorporating uh, both and, and is important for your success as a leader. So um, being sometimes you need to be agentic and that's great. Sometimes you need to be communal and that's also great. And one isn't better than the other. And I think organizations need to incorporate that into their evaluation systems. And that's where we see things like systemic bias happen is because when we're making criteria, we say, well, this is an objective measure or, or this is, but it's like, yeah, but what foundational principles was that measure created on? And are we then creating barriers that are preventing, you know, women from getting into these leadership roles even though we know, you know, meta-analysis shows that they're probably better at leading than men are, and there might be reasons why, um, but it doesn't mean men can't be great leaders too. I, I was just out in Prince Edward Island meeting with a, 
an employee who had a situation with a team and they were struggling and had to get them through a situation where a really traumatic event that had happened for them. And when talking to him, it was just really great to hear him talk about all the behaviors he took to solve this. And he was kind of like, I need you to help me understand what I did. And I was like, he was talking about how he was very compassionate with them, patient, when to make them stay connected, didn't let them start tearing each other apart, right? He wasn't, you know, well, you got to be better at this. You got to step up, right? He wasn't, he knew that this wasn't a moment where I needed to be agentic. I needed to be communal to keep them connected. And now he said, not only have they been prospering, they're all moved on to leadership roles themselves within that team. So I think it's a great example of, of what I'm hoping the take-home message is that I'm trying to share here. Well, that's a perfect way to wrap and a, and a really good example. So thank you for taking your time and for thank sharing you. your expertise. There's amazing um, amount of tips. And, and uh, as always, I learned a whole bunch too. Thank you for tuning in to Leadership in Practice. We'd like to thank our guest, Hayden Woodley. Leadership in Practice is produced by Melissa Welsh, Joanna Shepard, and me, Sean Acklin-Grant. Editing and audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. You can also find more information by visiting ivyacademy.com or follow us on social media at Ivy Academy for more content, upcoming events, and programs. We hope you'll join us again soon.